So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who do the, their entire working careers in, say, Florida or Arizona rarely choose to retire in Milwaukee. And I find it kind of funny that uh, sometimes I'll have conversations with Colorado natives about winter. And if you have only ever known Denver winter, I don't mean to be condescending, but you don't know winter. <laughs> if you are from the Midwest or have spent any time in the Midwest, you know there are kind of um, a slew of words associated with winter in that part of the country. And they are words like death, <laughs> ice, hypothermia, negative 30 degree wind chill, uh, snow blowers, salt trucks, black ice, scraping your car, dead batteries, frostbite, gangrene, diminished mental capacity, seasonal affective disorder, re recreational eating, did I mention death? <laughs> Welcome to almost winter, everybody, but D Denver, Denver is different. But I, um, I've actually heard people in the Midwest say, uh, but God made winter, it must be good. No, I don't think the Bible ever mentions winter before the fall. <laughs> like, wherever the Garden of Eden was, it clearly was not Milwaukee in January. <laughs> but no matter what you feel about the approaching season of winter, I want us to think about a kind of winter of the soul today. Because the truth is, you can relocate to a place that is warm and does not experience cold weather, but you cannot relocate to a place where you can avoid the winter of the soul. There is no place you can go to escape spiritual winter. Theologian Martin E. Marty wrote a book, he's reflecting uh, in the book about the terminal illness and loss of his beloved wife. And he said one of the great resources that all human beings need is what he calls a wintry spirituality. A spirituality for times when the warmth and the joy is taken away from us and no amount of sunny disposition will bring it back. We need a way of holding on to God when it feels as though God has let go of us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We are in this series called When Things Fall Apart. And what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Job in the Bible, the story of a man named Job in the Bible. And the central question in the book of Job is this. Can a human being hold on to God and faith and love even in the dead of winter. Winter, of course, can come in a lot of different forms. It can come when you lose your job, have a vocational crisis, wonder, like, who am I now apart from this job? Winter sometimes comes when you get a positive report from the doctor's test, and all of a sudden, all the dreams you had to see your children grow up and be married and be there and to 
grow old with your spouse and to die when you are good and ready, all of a sudden those are all in question. So you don't know anymore. Are you going to be there? Sometimes winter comes when you've failed as a parent or it arrives the day somebody you love dies and you have prayed and you have hoped and you don't understand. Any of those events can chill our souls. Any of them can announce the onset, onset of winter, the beginning of winter in our souls. But really, the event isn't usually the worst part. The very worst part of winter is that God seems gone in winter. So study of the book of Job in the Bible it just raises more questions than it provides answers. So we approach this whole series and the topic of pain and suffering with a healthy dose of fear and trepidation, truly. There is great mystery involved in sacred suffering and sorrow. And so we enter with like a holy reverence as we talk about this topic. Eugene Peterson, author and pastor, used to say, uh, the Bible is forming you, not informing you. And perhaps that is nowhere more true than in this book. Uh, years ago, there was a survey done. Thousands of people in this survey uh, were asked what had contributed most to their spiritual growth. Number one answer, pain. Pain. And the book of Job, uh, you know, just reveals there is nothing more certain in this world than suffering. And when we suffer, it is just natural to ask why. It is natural to ask why. Um, the book of Job is really like a lyrical epic poem. It begins, it kind of has three parts. It begins with this dialogue between God and Satan. And then it moves to a dialogue between Job and his friends. And then it wraps up with a dialogue between Job and God. And today we're looking at Job chapter 3. Job cries out to God from his suffering. And uh, we see in this story, uh, we see in the story of Job, what to avoid, what to embrace, and what to anticipate. So that's what we're going to look at today in suffering. Uh, first, let's review. Last week, we talked about Job is a righteous man. He fears God. He has a good life. And one day, it all falls apart. He loses everything. He loses his livestock. He loses his house. He loses his children. His initial response is worship. Naked I've come, naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But his affliction continues to grow. And Job cries out in agony. He actually is, his body has sores all over and he's out on an ash heap like a trash dump pile and he's scraping his body with like pieces of pottery. And he cries out to God in agony and says these words, which some of you may relate with. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. Why did I not perish at birth? 
and die as I came from the womb, for now I would be lying down in peace. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Oh, by the way, happy Sunday, everybody. This is the encouraging word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't mean to bum you out with something so heavy, but it is a really important question about developing a wintry spirituality. The first thing Job's story teaches us is what to avoid, and what to avoid in the face of suffering is pat answers. There are kind of two common pat answers that come in the face of suffering. One comes from religious folks. The other comes from secular folks. So religious folks tend to give a, t a pat answer that basically is in the worldview of moralism, what you could call moralism. Their pat answer goes like this. If you live a good life, God is going to bless you. If you are diligent and follow all the rules, God's going to give you a good life. So if you're experiencing suffering, then the implication is, should have been more diligent. Should really pray more. Should really sacrifice more. Try to gain God's approval more. Okay, that's kind of the religious, moralistic response. Secular folks, on the other hand, tend towards a kind of cynicism. So their pat answer goes more like this. Look, life is a crapshoot. Nobody's really in charge. The only thing that is real is what is seen in the material world. So, like, just keep your head down. Try to avoid pain in the first place. And if you experience suffering... Uh, there is nothing to do about it but get through it. There's no meaning in it. There's no purpose in it. There's no purpose in pain. And there is no God with you through it. So just kind of do your best to get past it. Now the book of Job shows us both these pat answers dead wrong. Both are dead ends. Like in the life of Job we see Job is a good man. He fears God. And his suffering is disproportionate and it is unjust. Job is a good man and he suffers unjustly, disproportionately. We see in the life of Job, innocent people do suffer. This is why moralism falls apart in the face of suffering. Even Jesus did not deserve what he got. Especially Jesus. And yet... In the suffering of our Savior, we find the redemption of the world. Hmm. So in the story of Job, and really the whole of the Bible, first we see pain, suffering, evil is not God's idea. It is actually in the book of Job, it is Satan who brings up this pain and inflicts this pain. 
The story of scripture overall goes something like this. In the beginning, God creates a perfect garden, a perfect world. And the serpent comes along and challenges God. And when Adam and Eve turn from God, the fall brings about alienation in several different forms, four in particular that I want to mention. So the fall brings about alienation in four different ways. First of all, there's spiritual alienation. Now Adam and Eve are alienated from God. But secondly, it brings about a psychological alienation because now they hide. They're ashamed and so they hid. And we've been hiding and dealing with shame ever since. There's a psychological alienation that occurs, enters the world at the fall. There's a social alienation. Relationships with each other, with others, begin to break down. And there's an environmental alienation. So now the garden has thorns in it. By the, spread, by the sweat of your brow, you will till it. There's an environmental alienation that happens. Now there are earthquakes and there are tsunamis. There is a brokenness that enters the scene at the fall. But the created order was perfectly harmonious before the fall. So in one sense... All suffering stems from the reality that we live in a fallen world. God created a perfect world, and the fall introduced brokenness in many forms. And the scriptures say that we are moving towards a day, and it has already begun. We are moving towards a day when a new heaven and a new earth will return us and our world to a garden-like state where things will be made right again. But in the meantime, many a person has asked, but why does God allow suffering? Like if he's all good and he wants what's good, and he's all powerful and he can make what is good, why does God allow suffering? The bottom line, I don't know what the reason is, but I know what the reason isn't. It isn't that God doesn't love us. Because when the fall occurred, God could have given up on the human race, but he did not. He began a rescue operation for humanity, and he himself came and suffered in the person of Jesus. Jesus actually never said, you won't suffer. He said, you will not suffer alone. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And one of the most Perhaps one of the most painful experiences that we have in this life is the experience of unanswered prayer. When you are crying out and crying out, and it seems that God is silent, unanswered prayer is a form of suffering. And even this form Jesus is not unaware of. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, that cup doesn't pass from him. He actually drinks its poison and he drinks its pain. And in doing so, identifies with us in all suffering. He died that we might live. And in the face of pain and suffering, we have to avoid pat answers. There is a mystery to suffering. And there is a presence in pain. So when things fall apart, we avoid pat answers. And Job's life also teaches us what to embrace. To embrace living without an answer to the why question. Because this story makes it clear, Job never gets an answer to the why question. Even at the end of the book, when he dialogues with God, God does not tell him why he has experienced the suffering. See, all Job can see is the loss and the pain Now, we as the readers, we have a different vantage point. We see this other dimension in the story. But Job does not have an answer to the why question. St. John of the Cross wrote a lot about the dark night of the soul. And he said the dark night is God's greatest gift to you. There are encounters that we have in the dark we cannot have anywhere else. So if darkness is inevitable, and if what St. John of the Cross says is true, that it's actually God's greatest gift to us, the question becomes, how do we learn to walk in the dark? Part of it, Job teaches us, is learning to embrace living without answers so that we might see in the dark Things that are actually there in the day that we don't see until it's dark. I mean, just think about physical darkness for a minute. Right now, in the light of day, the moon is there, the stars are there. There are shooting stars over our head. It isn't until dark comes that we see some of those things or hear the sound of cicadas. The story of Job shows us that we may never know, that there's a mystery at play in pain and in suffering, really, we're invited to stay in relationship with a God we cannot control. And the book, like we talked about last week, it's written like a play on two levels. You've got this upper stage in the theater and this lower stage in the theater, and the upper stage is what's happening, the activity of heaven. The lower stage is the activity of earth. And the people on earth, they can only see what's happening around them. They do not see, they are not privy to these conversations on the upper stage. And in that way, Job's story is our story. Because we too are on that lower stage. And we don't always know. We often do not know. What's very interesting, in the beginning of the story, Satan and God have this conversation. Now, we can get stuck on that. Wait a minute. Satan and God having a conversation? What is that all about? But sometimes um, that, that can get us stuck in missing the point. If you back up, you see Satan is the cynic in this story. He wants cynicism to win. God is the voice of love in this story. He wants love to win. So Satan says, 
God, Job doesn't love you. He just loves the blessings you give him. Take those blessings away. He's not going to love you anymore. It's a very cynical voice. And God says, Job loves me. He fears me. He has an inward awe and wonder towards me. God is saying, I can create love that only exists in freedom. I can create people who, like me, love without ulterior motives. God says, I can create people who love for love's sake, not out of self-interest or what they can get out of it. And Job never knows about that conversation in heaven. And on this earth, we live on the lower stage. You know, winter comes, we do not know why. And while Job does not find out about that conversation, as the story unfolds, he, he actually finds out about something better. He finds out who God is. See, by the end of the book, Job finds out God does not love out of self-interest. This is his nature. God loves irrationally. He takes delight in the hippopotamus. He takes delight in humans, not for anything that they do for him, but just out of their sheer existence. Job doesn't get answers to his why, but he, he actually, by the end, he gets something better. He, he finds out who God is. Really, you look at this book and sometimes people think like Job is on trial in this book. Really? God is on trial in this book. I mean, really, that is what's happening. God is on trial because Satan is challenging God by saying, you say you've created humans in your image who have this capacity for love, but Job doesn't really love you. He just loves the things you give him. It is a self-interested love. And God says, no, I have made humans in my image, and they are most human when they love like I love. When they love for love's sake, without self-interest, irrationally and generously. And this is why moralism, secularism, fail us in the face of pain, because both keep us in control. Neither of them help us to learn to walk in the dark. Only God can help us develop a wintry spirituality. Only the nail-pierced hands can lead us through the dark. See, if you build your life on God, suffering can actually drive you deeper into God. But if you build your life on things, and those things get taken away, as they always do in pain, then you're crushed. And there's nowhere else to go. The Bible's so interesting. It's so full of lament. Like, the Bible is actually not mostly written by people who are attempting to explain the problem of evil and suffering or people who are trying to prove God's existence. Mostly, Primarily, the Bible is written by people who are confused and disoriented and who are crying out to God in their pain. I mean, Jesus himself wept. Think about that, Jesus himself. There's not a stoicism about Jesus. It's not like Jesus goes through pain with a stiff upper lip. 
That is not what we see in the person of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus really pioneered this enabling of grief, crying out to God, a sort of enabling of grief that doesn't destroy you. He never modeled a stoic response to pain. There's an interesting article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, which is basically just looking at the emotional life of Christ and pointing out he cried, he hurt, he experienced rejection and betrayal and bled and died. All the emotions, the emotional life of our Lord. And yet his weeping and his crying out did not lead to a hardness of heart. It actually led to greater love. And Job teaches us, you know, to avoid these pat answers, to embrace living without an answer to the why question. And then Job also shows us what to anticipate, and that is to anticipate the final answer. I mean, you could say there are kind of like three basic approaches, maybe more, but three basic approaches to suffering in this world. There's the fatalistic, the humanistic, the moralistic. So fatalism would be like God is the author of evil. Um, so in the face of suffering, like, you're better off dead. It's very fatalistic, right? And then humanism says God doesn't have anything to do with evil. There is no grander plan going on. There's no meaning to suffering. Do your best to avoid it. And when it comes, because this material world is all there is, you better scramble and panic to build it back. And no one is with you through it. Moralism, of course, like we said, God lets bad people suffer. And he blesses good people. So if you're facing suffering, you better, you better just grovel about it. Maybe try harder, pray harder, work harder next time to please God. But the Bible says the character and nature of God is good. That he created a perfect world. And because of the fall we now experience, brokenness in all these forms... But because God could not give up on humanity, we have a suffering Savior who actually reaches down through death to pull you into life. Who he himself reaches through the pain to pull you into life. So when we suffer, we do not suffer alone. And our suffering, it's not the end of the story. It doesn't end here. It's not the end of the story. God knows, God cares, and when God himself came to earth, he came himself in winter. So like Job, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Like Job, who was not even recognized by his friends, Jesus too was so disfigured. Jesus went through the winter of feeling that absence of God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an author, Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff. He wrote a book called Lament for a Son. He wrote it after his son died in a terrible climbing accident. And he writes about that line in the scriptures that say no one can face, uh, no one can see the face of God and live. And he says about that line, he says, I always thought that meant that no one can see God's glory and live. No one can see the face of God and live. He said, I always thought that meant no one can see God's glory and live. 
But then a friend suggested maybe it means no one can see God's suffering and live. And then he says, perhaps his suffering is his glory. Like never did we see the glory more clearly than when Christ is on the cross. The ultimate picture of sacrificial love. And so if it is winter in your life and you wonder where God is, you do, no, you do not need to wonder anymore. Like he is on the ash heap. Jesus was, in a sense, never closer to you, to me, than when he was furthest from the Father. So perhaps his suffering is his glory. And so we anticipate, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we anticipate this final answer. That suffering is not the end of the story. That he was raised to life. That he overcame death. That he reached his arms through death to raise us up into new life. And that, like we talked about last week, it's not just that suffering will end. But it will be redeemed. It will be undone. Like Gandalf said to Samwise Gamgee, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yeah. That is the hope we anticipate. It's not just that suffering will end, but that it will be reversed, undone, redeemed. The writers of the scriptures say, because of this final glory, where this story is headed, we do not lose heart. The, the scriptures say that all of these troubles are, in the light of eternity, we will look back and we will say they are light and momentary. Like every pain, every evil, every bit of heartache, all the suffering, the scriptures teach that we're going to, one day we're going to look back, we're going to be like, light and momentary, light and momentary, light and momentary. In light of eternity. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you that you reached right through death to bring us up into life. God, thank you that you are familiar with suffering, that you do not say we will not suffer, but that we will not suffer alone. So I pray for each person in the winter season of the soul right now. I pray that you might enable them to avoid pat answers, to embrace living without the answer to the why, and to anticipate the final answer that's made, made possible because of your resurrection. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.